1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire
2: professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The vaccine. The vaccine, the United States government worked with the private sector to develop a, a vaccine with the company Moderna. They own the intellectual property of the vaccine. Okay, you got me? There are people all over the world who cannot afford it. I've got the vaccine here in my hand. You can't afford it? Sorry. You tell me. Is that criminal? Is that any different than if you're walking by a swimming pool and you saw a kid drowning and you said, well, I don't want to get my bathing suit. wet." Right? What is that? What, how do we describe that? So words, these are the kinds of crime is not just committed by people who rob banks. Terrible crimes are committed by people in three-piece suits, distinguished gentlemen who contribute money to the local art institute uh, and to charities, right? And they're upstanding citizens who make decisions. that kill lots of people. Do we talk about it in that way? You tell me. Now, when you get sick, you go to the doctor, right? Mm. How much does it cost you to go in? Nothing. Nothing? Oh my God. (laughs) All right. How many people do you know who have gone bankrupt in the UK because of medical bills? No one. No one? Oh my God. All right, UK, listen up. Here's the new one, new phenomenon for you. You now have the opportunity, if you move to the private system, to go bankrupt because of medically related debt. N-O. No, no, no. That would be the dumbest thing you could possibly do. Go well, and uh, cheers as well. All right. I got strong water here. All right.
1: (laughs) Cheers. Bernie Saunders, hello.
2: How's good to going? be with you good
1: very glad to have you here um welcome to the harlequin in angel in london i guess so uh, yeah politics show's favorite pub we uh we have mick lynch and Eddie dempsey here not too long ago so some good ideas bouncing around these tables but um we're very glad to have you have you here before we get into the book it's okay to be angry about capitalism um could you tell us in your own words who you are and how you came to have the ideas that you, that you have
2: um i grew up in brooklyn new york uh, my dad was a paint salesman. He came from Poland at the age of 17 without any money at all. And I grew up uh, in a family, uh, we never had much money, and we lived in a rent con- what was called rent control department uh, in Brooklyn, New York. So I became kind of conscious about what lack of money does to a family at a very early age. I went to public schools uh, in New York City. Uh, when I was a young man, I got involved in the civil rights movement, um, and uh, later on uh, became involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement, became involved in issues of economic justice, uh, ran on a small splinter party, if you like. I uh, did not get very many votes, but I had an opportunity to talk to a lot of people, and I enjoyed it. Uh, in 1981, to everybody's surprise, I defeated an incumbent mayor in Burlington, Vermont became mayor. Uh, We got re-elected, re-elected, re-elected again. And we did a lot of good things, interesting things as mayor of the city. And my wife and I were just talking about the youth office that we put together. Got a lot of young people involved uh, in civic life. Um, I ran for Congress. I lost, ran again. I won, served in Congress for 14 years as an independent, caucusing with the Democrats. Uh, and then in 2006, became a United States Senator. Uh, and today I am chairman of one of the important uh, Senate committees called the Health, Education, Labor and Pension Committee.
1: If we have time, I'd like to t- love to talk about that. Um, but let's start with a broad definition of terms. Obviously, we're talking about capitalism. Yeah. How do you characterize our current economic system?
2: It's extraordinarily unfair and destructive. Uh, and, and what the book is about, Ali, is just to try to get people to start, take a step back and think about the world that we take for granted, but that we should not take for granted. Uh, and I obviously am much more familiar with the United States than I am with the UK and other countries, but in the United States, we have more income and wealth inequality than any time in the history of the country. All right? And people don't know this, and people don't think about it, three people... Own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. Think that's an issue we should be talking about? Is that good from a moral perspective? You got people sleeping out on the streets, people in America who are hungry, desperate, free people who are worth more money than they can spend in 10,000 lifetimes. Okay, so that's issue number one: more income and wealth inequality. Issue number two, which we don't talk about very much, certainly true here in UK as well as other countries. More concentration of ownership. Uh, what does that mean? What it means is it used to be people started a small business. You started a small business, you have a business, you have a business. Today, in sector after sector, whether it is financial services, Wall Street, whether it is media, uh, whether it's agriculture, whether it's transportation, whether it's big tech, you have fewer and fewer multi billion dollar corporations controlling that sector. And interestingly enough, during the worst of the pandemic, when in my country, tens of thousands of workers died because they had to go to work, bus drivers, nurses, went to work, the billionaire class became $2 trillion richer. All right? and, and corporate profits soared, and prices went up. You know, We talk about inflation. In America, at least, we think that half of inflation was a result of corporate greed just raising prices so they can make more corporate profits. So you got corporate, a smaller number of people controlling the economy. Then the third issue I worry about, and America is different here than the UK, is we have a pretty corrupt political system in the sense that as a result of a terrible Supreme Court decision, if you're a billionaire and you want to get involved in politics, you can write out a check for hundreds of millions of dollars put it into a super PAC. You know what a super PAC is? Yeah. Political Action Committee that can spend money to support your candidates or defeat your candidates. All right. That's not democracy. That's oligarchy. And the fourth issue that concerns me in terms of what's going on in America is, and again, it's different than it is here in the UK, is we have eight large media conglomerates that control about 90% of what the American people see, here and read. What does that mean? What that ends up meaning is that issues like the issues I discuss in this book are virtually never discussed on American television. I'll give you one example. I'll give you a million, but one example. In the United States, we spend more than twice as much as the UK does on healthcare. Okay, We have a system which is dominated by private insurance companies whose goal is to make as much money as they can. If you don't have any insurance, you can't go to the doctor. Not their worry. They've got to make money. That's what it is. I have never been asked, never been asked, how does it happen that we spend so much money on health care and yet 85 million people are uninsured or underinsured, and in some cases we pay five, ten times more for prescription drugs than you do. Now you would think that's a pretty simple question to ask, hey Bernie, what's going on? What can we learn from Canada? What can we learn from UK? What do we learn from France about healthcare? Never, never. And that is the corporate media is owned by billionaires. And their agenda, it's not like it's authoritarian. It's not like somebody calls a commentator up and says, this is what you have to say. It doesn't work that way. But basically, they know what we can discuss and what we can't discuss. So some of the most important issues facing working class people are never discussed. In fact, interestingly enough, in America, I don't know how it is here, the phrase working class is never used. Ruling class is never used. Now, when you've got three people owning more wealth than the bottom half, do you think we have a ruling class? I think so. I think so, yeah. But no media person will say, well, the ruling class today has decided. That, we cannot conceptualize class. We're not allowed to. We're all in one happy middle class, despite the fact that the middle class is shrinking, and working class is really falling far behind. I won't lie. That section
1: about media and
2: the questions you don't get asked—I have used that as a bit of a crib
1: sheet in preparation for this interview. <laughs> so we will, we will come to them. Um, but before we before we get into those issues, I mean, can we just talk about the morality of that wealth inequality? Because you mentioned Good. you mentioned um,
2: you know how immoral it is. Could you talk about that in a little bit more detail? Yeah. I mean, again, what I want people. Is, I'm throwing out expressions here. I hope they work here in the UK. It was hmm. thinking outside the box. Yeah, we know that one. All right, good It's <laughs> <laughs> so what to make making sure. Alright, All right, so look some kid today in London walks in and robs a store, right? And everyone says that's wrong criminal should be punished fine. I accept that What happens if you are the head of a multi multi billion dollar fossil fuel company And 60 years ago, your scientists came to you and said, you know what, the product that we are producing is going to destroy this planet, Okay, 60 years ago. And what the company did say is, well, we're in trouble here, so we better lie about it. We will deny the reality. We'll set up, we'll put money into what we call front organizations, say, well, there's a big debate going on about climate change. Some people say, yeah, some people, we're working on it. right?" And the result of that will be trillions of dollars of destruction on the planet. God knows how many people will die. Okay? What do you consider that? So, some kid goes in, robs a store, that's a criminal offense. Do we think in America or around the world that it is a criminal offense that the CEOs who make tens of millions a year lie about a product which is destroying the planet? How do you deal with that? All right? Other example, more relevant in the United States than it is here. We pay in America the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs, OK? One out of four people cannot afford the drugs their doctors prescribe. That's how crazy it is. Now, what do we say? How, do you do, how would you describe the head of a drug company? They sit around the room. They say, well, we're going to raise the prices of insulin, OK? Now, we have a lot of diabetics in the United States. Raise the price of insulin. Somebody said, well, if you do that, thousands of people are not going to be able to afford it. Some may die. And the answer is, well, our job is to make money. And so if people die, that's the way it is. How do you describe that behavior?
1: Well, it's murderous, callous, <laughs> callous in the extreme.
2: Yes, Greedy. It, is. it is. The vaccine, all right? The vaccine, the United States government actually, asked, we have a very good uh, agency called the National Institute of Health, a really great scientists, work with the private sector to develop uh, a vaccine with the company Moderna. They own the intellectual property of the vaccine. OK, you got me? There are people all over the world who cannot afford it. I've got the vaccine here in my hand. You can't afford it? Sorry. You tell me. Is that criminal? Is that any different than if you're walking by a swimming pool and you saw a kid drowning, and you said, well, I don't want to get my bathing suit wet? Right? What is that? What, how do we describe that? So notice, These are the kinds of crime is not just committed by people who rob banks. Terrible crimes are committed by people in three-piece suits, distinguished gentlemen who contribute money to the local art institute uh, and to charities, right? And they're upstanding citizens who make decisions that kill lots of people. Do we talk about it in that way? You tell me. No, we don't. Right. And that's the kind of discussion we have to have. And the people that do talk
1: about it in that way are often labeled as extreme. Right.
2: And I would argue that it's rather extreme <laughs> for a fossil fuel industry to produce a product that may kill millions of people, right? Yeah, of course. All right. So, I mean, that's the kind of discussion that we need to have. Who determines what is really important? I think that when you have, in, again, in my country, massive income and wealth inequality, that is... A major issue from the media's perspective from the billionaires perspective they don't want you to think that that is a major issue And in fact what's going on here and I don't want to be too inflammatory is we are in the midst of a massive class warfare massive class so the people on top are doing phenomenally well and they will spend whatever it takes to protect the status quo it's going great for them mm. not so great for the working class in my country just give you an example and again we don't talk about this much You know, I know, everybody knows that we have seen an explosion of technology, right? Workers now produce far more. When I was mayor of Burlington in the early 80s, we didn't have a computer. We didn't have email. All right, everything is more productive now. And yet in the last 50 years, the weekly wages of the average American worker is less today in inflation adjusted for dollars than it was 50 years ago. How does that happen? Meanwhile there has been a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. So I know I'm throwing around a lot of numbers and people are going, oh my God, sick and tired of numbers. Bottom line is, middle class is shrinking, people on top are doing phenomenally well, people on top have virtually all of the power, they like what's going on, and they want to maintain the status quo. That's it in a sense.
1: I think you can go a step further talking about that class warfare and actually argue that the ruling class is on the offensive, right? It's yes. Not, it's not just, oh, there's a con- constant state of conflict between the two. It's like one end is on, is on the losing end, the receiving end of a lot yep. of it. That's so how do you see then, you know, if, if you want to take a phrase like, billionaires shouldn't exist, what's the route to bringing that into existence?
2: First of all, we have to raise public consciousness. You know, like you say, billionaires, sh- that's a chapter in the book. Ali didn't just think of that off the <laughs> top of his head. <laughs> I don't think of anything off the software. But we have to begin that discussion. All right, look, if you go out and you start a business and you're successful in it and you make money, fine. Good, good for you. You want to make money, you want to become rich, that's great. But should society say that really when we got people in desperate shape, that you should not be making billions and billions of dollars? I think society can say that so this is not a book against innovation against new ideas businesses want to make money but there should be a limit billionaires in fact uh should not uh, exist and we got to be thinking about it the way you do it is through a fair and progressive tax system all right so you're a successful businessman you have more money than me fine but there's got to be a limit to it and we are going to tax you very heavily on the upper end of the amount of money that you make so that you're not a billionaire you will have plenty of money to take care of your family you can own a dozen homes, maybe not 20 homes, only you know, 10 homes, I know, painful. No, Your yacht could only be 5,000 feet, <laughs> not you know, 10,000, I don't know, but uh, you'll survive.
1: You'll get by, you'll get by. Yeah, it's quite striking um, for me from a sort of external perspective on recent American politics, the kind of obsession, psychodrama around foreign interference in elections, right? When, it, for me, it appears to be in plain sight, the threat is domestic. Well, it's both. I mean, we, oh, I, I mean, I think
2: you got Russia and, and perhaps other countries meddling through social media in, in elections. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's true. But you're right. It is in plain sight. See, so here's the story. If you come to America, you decide to become an American citizen, mm. and you take me into a back room or this little pub here, and you say, Bernie, here is $5, and I want you to vote for this bill. If you have found out that if you gave me that $5, you would be fi- found guilty of a serious crime bribing a senator. I would be found guilty of accepting it. Right? You're, b- you're bribing me, If mm-hmm. I take it. We're both in deep trouble. Give me $5. On the other hand, if you are a billionaire and you say, hey, I'm going to set up a super PAC for you and put $100 million to make sure that you get reelected," perfectly legal. Okay, So it is in plain sight. Perfectly legal for billionaires to buy elections. And what the Supreme Court did a number of years ago in a decision called Citizens United is, you know, in America, we believe in freedom of speech, freedom of all of that. And what the Supreme Court said, you're a billionaire. You have free speech. You want to run $100 million on ads attacking Bernie Sanders. That's your freedom. You want to destroy democracy. That's your freedom. Needless to say, some of us strongly disagree. You've spoken before about corporate
1: Democrats. And I don't, want, I don't want to make this personal, although you can if, if you wish to. But could you talk a little bit about that and, and the Build Back Better bill as well, specifically? Yeah.
2: And, and I think it, it's possible that many in the UK are, are not aware of that. Of course. Um, after Biden was elected, um, my campaign sat down with his campaign. And we said, look, let's work together on... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. important issues facing the American people, whether it is healthcare, education, climate, um, housing, whatever it may be. And we did. We put together task forces and they came up with, you know, pretty strong progressive ideas. When Biden became president, we were in the midst of this terrible pandemic. Thousands of people were dying every day. We did not have a vaccine uh, and uh, the economy was crashing. Worst economic situation. Uh, since the Great Depression. Small businesses going under, kids not going to school, schools closing, hospitals overflowing under great stress. We worked together to pass a bill called the American Rescue Plan. It was a $1.9 trillion bill, which I worked very hard on with the president, which gave $1,400 to every man, woman, and child in this country in a time of a massive economic crisis. Gave $350 per child uh, for working parents, helped small businesses, helped hospitals, helped schools, made sure that the vaccine would get distributed uh, in a way that hadn't, you know, we hadn't been able to do before. A very impressive bill, and I was glad that Biden was very supportive. Then came, we said, this was an emergency bill, right? It was an emergency, we responded effectively. What Biden said, what I said, what others said, okay, let us now deal with the structural, you know what I mean by structural? Yeah, yeah. The long, not an emergency, the long-standing problems, which are what? Well, uh, we have elderly people in America that don't have any teeth in their mouth. They can't afford hearing aids. We're going to expand our health care program to cover them. Our child care system, I don't know, how is child care here? Is it in decent shape? It's very expensive.
1: Is Incredibly it? It's expensive. So if
2: you're a working person, hard to afford child care? A lot of people have to make the choice
1: between, let's say you're not particularly well paid, it's more economically better for you to just stay home and look after a child.
2: Okay, same thing in the United States. So in the United States, in my state, which is cheaper than most, it's about $15,000 per person. So if you make average income 50 or 60,000, you're spending a quarter of your income just to put your kid, if you're lucky enough to find a slot. Meanwhile, psychologists tell us that zero through four of the most important years of intellectual and emotional development. We pay childcare workers terribly. So we had a revolutionary approach to childcare, really gonna transform it. We said, if you wanna go to higher education, at least the first two years would be tuition free. We have a major housing crisis in America. We put hundreds of billions of dollars to build low income and affordable housing. We have a problem in home healthcare. In other words, this was, this legislation, which originally started out of my committee at $6 trillion, went down, would have been the most significant piece of legislation for the working class of America. It dealt with virtually all of the problems that working class families were facing. And we had zero Republican support, not one Republican. And in the Senate, it was 50 Democrats um, in the Democratic caucus, 50 Republicans. And we negotiated, we worked, we worked and two corporate Democrats. And by that, I mean two Democrats who get a whole lot of money from the wealthy. And they ended up saying, no, we don't want to go with it. So we lost the opportunity to really do a lot of good stuff for working-class people, and I think restore faith in democracy as well. You, I mean, you mentioned
1: there the collaborative approach you've had with the Biden administration, and you know, it's been a very progressive administration so far. But you're quite harsh on the Democrats in the book as a whole. Aren't yes, you? yes. I mean, and I know you just mentioned there you vote with the caucus, but there's room for improvement in the party, clearly, from much, point of
2: view. much room for improvement. Look, what our campaigns did is show that there were a lot of working class people and young people. We won in both of our campaigns the support of young people under 40 in overwhelming numbers. It wasn't even close. Landslide victories. We did very poorly for whatever reason with older people. And what I wanted to see and want to see is the Democratic Party say, wow, we got all of this energy, this youthful energy out there people who are fighting racism and sexism and homophobia, people who in many ways are economically worse off than their parents, people who are willing to take on big money interests and, and corporate interests, bring them in, open the door. Wow, that is fantastic, imagine a party of young people working with older people, coming up with great ideas to transform America. That's what I wanted to see. And in a few states that happened, but in most states people said, sorry, Stay away. It's our party. We really don't want you. We don't want the, you know, the great, what we call, unwashed masses to come into the party. We'll run it. Thank you very much. Uh, and you know we have a chapter in the book that says, no, open the damn doors. Here's an agenda that can work for working people. At the end of the day, politically, what we have to do, what I think every other country on earth has to do, is to bring people together around an agenda that works for everyone. I don't care if you're black, if you're Latino, if you're Asian-American, whatever you may be. You need health care, you need good education, you want a clean environment, uh, you want to make sure your kids can get decent childcare. We know what the agenda is. We know that people support that agenda. Let's do it. On that point then about the labor
1: movement, I mentioned uh, Mick Lynch earlier. You spoke at an RMT rally in the summer, which uh, Politics Joe covered. Jeremy Corbyn doesn't have a place in the Labour Party anymore. I wonder, well, first of all, your reflections on the Labour movement, not the party, the movement, uh, more broadly in the UK right now. Uh,
2: don't know enough about it. I had the opportunity to meet Mick the last time I was here, a very impressive guy. And I'm glad to see, yeah, from a distance, uh, working people, whether they're nerv- uh, nurses, uh, people in transportation, whatever it may be, standing up and saying, you know what? We are entitled to decent wages. We're doing important work. We put our lives on the line during COVID. All right. We need to be respected and paid adequately. On
1: that point there, you, you previously made about the Democrats and the working class base, something similar has happened with the Labour Party here in that yeah. that working class vote has kind of, over time, fallen away. What do you see as the route to rebuilding that coalition for both the Democrats and all the Labour I don't Party? think that's
2: complicated. Go ahead. I really don't. What happens in the United States? And again, I'm obviously much more familiar with the US than here. Is uh, for the last 40 or 50 years, there was a time, let me back up, under FDR, under even Harry Truman in the, in, in the 40s, even under John F. Kennedy, where if you went out on the street and you said to people, which is the party of the working class in America, everyone said, well, that's the Democratic Party. Which is the party of big business? Well, that's the Republican Party. And that was kind of agreed upon. But then what happened 40, 50 years ago, the Democrats said, hmm. Why don't we go out and get all that corporate money? Why are the Republicans getting it? We should go out and get it. And once you start hustling money from the wealthy, things begin to change. And there is a justified belief, because it's true, on the part of working class people all over this country whose parents and grandparents voted for Democrats that the Democrats don't really care about them, have turned their backs on them, have become associated with the beautiful people, right? You know, the Hollywood folks and all that and i'm afraid that to a large degree that is true uh and people say you talk about this but you don't do it and trump is here he's a powerful guy you know he may lie all the time he may be a little bit crazy but he's going to do something and we need something to be done so if you put yourself in the position of the average working class person in many ways their standard of living is in decline they can't afford to send their kids to college they can't afford health care, and they can't afford housing, and they're saying, who cares about me? Does anyone know that I live? Or are you too busy associating with the rich and the famous? Hey, I'm here. Anyone paying attention to me? And to a large degree, the Democrats are not there. So um, what this book is about is saying to the Democrats, that has got to be your constituency. Forget about your billionaire friends and your corporate contributions. You're going to win elections if you stand with them. And we know what the agenda is. Uh, And and I talk about it, but it's not complicated. Everybody knows what it is. We all need quality healthcare. We need affordable housing. We need decent childcare, decent education. We want to protect the planet for our kids and grandchildren. It's not complicated. Let's stand together and let's tell the billionaire class they can't run the world anymore. On that point, I would just like to
1: quote a bit of the book, if that's all right with you. Um, You write that there is not a middle ground between the insatiable greed of uber capitalism and a fair deal for the working class. There is not a middle ground as to whether or not we save the planet. There is not a middle ground about whether or not we preserve our democracy and remain a society based on equal protection for all. I mean, you you regularly return to the realities of class warfare, the offensive waged by oligarchs, um, that refrain, whose side are you on? And I think that's particularly relevant, you might not say so, but to to Keir Starmer's Labour Party in the UK and also to the Democrats, that you do have to pick a side.
2: Yes, you do, you do. And not only is that, from my perspective, the right thing to do, I mean, if you're in politics, what is, you're serious about politics, your job is to uplift people who are living in desperation. That seems to be a no-brainer. Uh, but it is good politics, too. Because if you go out on the street and you're talk, talking about the issues that are impacting people's lives, they can say, hey, Ali, thank you. OK, you got my support. Let's do it. All right? If you ignore their needs, why would they vote for you? Why would they vote at all?
1: Let's talk about health care. Cool. Um, the situation in the NHS right now in Britain is, is bad. Yes. Record waiting lists, people sleeping in hospital corridors because they can't get beds, people dying waiting for ambulances. And uh, a lot of the discourse around this has started to shift towards whether or not the private sector <laughs> can help us to alleviate some of these problems. And it's not just uh, the Conservative Party. There's some talk from West Street and the Shadow Health Secretary as well. Um, as someone with direct experience of the American healthcare system, could you explain to us whether the American way is something we should be trying to emulate here in Britain?
2: N-O, no, no, no. That would be the dumbest thing you could possibly do. All right. Tell me why. All right, I'll tell you why. Right now in America, I, I should have known this, I don't know, but we're spending at least twice as much for a person on health care as U.S. are You know how much we're spending? $13,000 for every man, woman, and child. You're a family of four. $52,000 a year just on health care, okay? Why do we spend so much on healthcare? Because the function of a privately driven healthcare system is not to provide quality care to all. It is to make money for the insurance companies. So they sit around and say, okay, how can I make as much money as we possibly can? And they come up with a very complicated system, essentially designed to keep you from getting the care that you need so that they can make more profits. It's not, not very complicated. So the American healthcare system is working great. I gotta tell you, for the insurance companies, they make tens of billions of dollars every single year. All right, you talk about waiting, All right. <laughs> okay, and again, it's like everything else. In fairness, if you are wealthy in America, you could probably get the best health care in the world. Mm. But if you are a working class person, first of all, I can go on for several hours on this one here, you know where you get your health You get your health care, in most cases, through your job, okay? So your employer will provide health care to you. Some employers provide very strong health care benefits. Most do not. So, Ali, you're working for me. You're an average worker. I say, okay, you're getting X dollars a week in your wages, fair enough, and here is your health care benefit. We're gonna cover you, but you have a deductible. Do you know what a deductible is? Tell me. All right, people in Great Britain, listen up. Because if you're gonna move through the American healthcare system, that disaster, you gotta learn these terms. This is what a deductible is. Now, when you get sick, you go to the doctor, right? Mm. How much does it cost you to go in? Nothing. Nothing? Oh my God. All right. In America, you get sick, you go to the doctor, you have an insurance plan, all right? And the doctor says, okay, your deductible has not yet kicked in. What does that mean? You gotta pay it depending on the plan. And there are hundreds of different plans. On average, let's just say you're a family of two, three people, you got a $10,000 deductible. You know what that means? That before your insurance kicks in, you got to pay the first $10,000 out of your own pocket. You got that? Yeah. Now, if you got hit by a bus, or you ran up a $100,000 bill, it is likely the insurance will kick in the $90,000. But if you are simply sick, or your kid is sick, you got to come up with the first $10,000. And what happens if you're making $60,000 a year? You're going to say, you know what? I can't afford that money. So first of all, understand that the American people pay a whole lot of money out of their own pocket. Second of all, how many people do you know who have gone bankrupt in the UK because of medical bills? No one. No one? Oh my god. All right, UK, listen up. (laughs) Here's a new one, new phenomenon for you. You now have the opportunity, if you move to the private system, to go bankrupt because of medically related debt. All right. Let's just say in America, here's the story, we have, I think, 320 million people. 85 million are uninsured or underinsured. That means uninsured, you got no insurance, period. You got nothing. Underinsured means you have a high deductible, a high copayment. So it's not only that you have to pay the first 10,000, you go in, you gotta pay, if the bill is 100 bucks, you may have to pay 20 bucks out of that, got it? All right, you end up in the hospital, not unusual, a serious illness, surgery, cost you two, $300,000, your insurance is not going to cover all that. Let's say you fifty $50,000 in debt. You're a working class person. You can't come up with the $50,000. You're hounded for the bill. Can't pay it. You, the best option for you is going bankrupt. 500,000 people a year in America go bankrupt. Your whole credit is ruined because you can't pay your medical bills. Okay. So, other than the fact that we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world, incredibly bureaucratic, with high deductibles, which force over 60,000 people a year to die because they don't get to a doctor on time, other than the fact that we pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. It's a great system, fantastic system, think about it. All right, but the answer is, and I say this with all honesty, this country, UK, has a, a right to be enormously proud of what you accomplished way back in 1948. What you said to the whole world, um, and I, Bevin, led that effort, is to say, health care is a human right. You're poor, you're rich, you're going to go to the doctor, the hospital, doesn't no matter who you are. An extraordinarily profound statement advancing human values. Don't give up on that. Strengthen your system. Put money into the system. Do what you have to do to make sure you have the doctors, the nurses, the other ancillary care that you have. Don't go the American way. Uh, We
1: are running out of time, so we're going to have to rattle through a couple now. You've obviously got a lot of different places to be. Quickly, is it un-American to make these direct criticisms about your country?
2: It's totally 100% of what America is supposed to be about. Um, Serious debate about serious issues is what democracy is about. People disagree with me, that's fine.
1: Let's have that debate. What else makes you angry other than capitalism?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um... Well, too many things make me angry, but I also don't like bureaucracy, as a matter of fact, which we have a lot of in both of our countries. All right, but the bottom line, you know, i of what this book is about. It doesn't have all the answers, but what I hope it does is gets people thinking, you know, and, and start challenging some of the things that we just accept as normal. It is not normal that so few have so many and so many have so little. And the other thing it touches on is we are in the midst of a technological revolution in terms of artificial intelligence and robotics that is going to replace millions of jobs in this country and in my country. Who's going to be making those decisions? Whether or not you're laid off, thrown out on the street, whether you benefit from that technology. So we better be thinking about it. And it shouldn't just be the big corporations who own that technology who benefit. It should be working people. Last one,
1: realistically, do you think you'll ever be president of the United States? Who
2: knows? Uh, I, I think probably not, um, but uh, you know, if Biden runs, uh, which I think he will, I'll be supporting him. It's been an absolute pleasure
1: getting angry hey. about capitalism with you, we Thank you so much, <laughs> I really appreciate it. Go well, and uh, cheers as well.
2: All right, I got strong water here. All right,
1: <laughs> cheers.